What a wonderful occasion it will be that we can be in heaven where there are no tears, no sorrows, and that we will be able to enjoy the time of being with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit throughout through eternity. And it's a wonderful occasion. You know, for the course of the last two months and Sunday evening, we've been considering the significance of the Bible mountains. And today I want to bring that short series to an end as we look at one of the most famous mountains in in all of biblical teaching, at least the most famous mount associated with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that is the Mount of Olives, sometimes called Mount Olivet. Mount Olivet. When we study the Mount of Olives, it's primarily associated with Jesus, but there is a reference to this Mount even in the Old Testament. But I want us to focus today particularly about some events that occurred upon this mountain, on on top of this mountain, not long before Jesus died and shortly after his resurrection. Now the Mount of Olives of course, is known for its olive groves. That makes sense, doesn't it? And therefore, we understand how it got its name. But numerous olive groves of olive trees on that mountainside were just on the east side of Jerusalem. Now, it's not a very tall mountain, as we generally think about high mountains, but more of a a ridge that was on the east side of the city. And I want us to begin this evening by considering the importance of the Mount of Olives in confirming the very message of Jesus. And so the title of this message is Mount of Olives, the Mount of Confirmation. The Mount of Confirmation. Here Jesus confirms some key teaching to his disciples upon this mountain. In fact, there's going to be a place where Jesus could oftentimes relax, where he could sometimes just sit down and read and enjoy some very good conversation with his disciples. And in the midst of that conversation, there was some pivotal teaching that they needed to hear was on this mountain. The disciples, being in more of a relaxed mode, were able to then ask Jesus some questions, maybe Maybe in a personal sense, uh, maybe not so, but whatever it was, they, they were able to, in this relaxed mode, to be able to ask Jesus some serious questions in hopes that he would answer, and he always would answer their questions. And so in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, we have Jesus on this Mount of Olives with his disciples And his disciples ask a couple of questions of which they do not realize that in asking these questions, that they were actually talking about two different events, two different events. Now, in their minds, the end of Judaism would be the end of the world. But I want you to notice in verse three of chapter 24, verse three of chapter 24. And as he sat upon the Mount of olives. That's Jesus. The disciples 
came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And when shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? What have they just heard from the lips of Jesus? Well, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24, notice, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto him, unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, you, you, you can picture Jesus saying, You see all of this that's out there? There will not be one stone left here upon one another that shall not be thrown down. And then, of course, we know verse 3, but that's on their minds. And they want to know when that is going to happen. And so they ask the question, when is this going to take place? That is, when will the temple be destroyed? And what shall be the sign of thy coming, the sign of the end of the world? And Jesus says to his disciples in verse 4, that we must heed what he says. He says, take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. It's clear when studying Matthew's, Matthew chapters 24 and 25 that Jesus is talking about two particular events. One is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, which he foretold and which came to pass. The destruction came to pass in about A.D. 70. Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, 70. But Jesus is also going to answer another question that is beneficial to all of us, and that is, when will the end of time take place? Are there signs that precede the Lord's coming? What will it be like when Jesus comes again and the end of the world takes place? Now, so many in studying Matthew chapters 24 and 25 do not understand that Jesus is answering two different questions. When will the temple be destroyed? Thus, when will the end of Judaism arrive? When will it receive its fatal blow? And when will Jesus come again to judge the world and to raise the dead? Those things that we sometimes call last things, the doctrine that deals with last things, eschatology. Jesus talks about that here in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. But we find that in this opening chapter of Matthew 24, that Jesus speaks of certain signs that one can follow if he's interested of when the destruction of the temple is going to take place. Now we know from secular history that the Roman armies had besieged the city of Jerusalem in about A.D. 70. And we also understand that they made havoc of that city. They made havoc. They wreaked havoc upon that city. We also know that during that period of time that the temple itself was indeed destroyed. And, through, and though at the cross Jesus had nailed the old law to the cross, right? And that the, the, uh, 
there was a fatal blow to Judaism all because of that in AD 70. And Jesus said concerning that time when those things happened, look at verse 16. He says, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that ye flight be not in the winter, neither on the seventh day. May I ask a question? What does it matter about those things when Jesus comes? What does it matter about those things that I just read when Jesus comes? Pray that you don't flight in the winter, right? We pray that you not do it on the Sabbath day, but to flee into the mountains. There is no reference in that occasion at all that have anything to do with the end of the world. What does that have to do with the second coming? If that passage is teaching about the second coming of Christ, as so many in the religious world teach, what does it really have to do with the second coming of Christ? What does it really matter that one in Judea flee to the mountains when Jesus comes again? What does it really matter that one come down from the housetop? Why does it really matter that no one go back to get his clothes? Why and what does it really matter whether or not a woman is expecting and that it's winter time or not? It doesn't. It doesn't. In this particular chapter, the first part of Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the impending destruction of Jerusalem. Now, secular history tells us that all the Christians that were in Jerusalem heeded to what Jesus had said to flee to the mountains and not to worry about taking anything with them but what they had. And that every Christian, faithful Christian, survived the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Secular history tells us that. But just as he foretold, it would come to pass. But I did not want you to notice a break here in Matthew 24 in verse 36, if you will. Jesus says, But of that day an hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. My Father only. And what was he talking about? The sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, verse 30. But of that day, but of that day, you also last concerning the day of my return, the end of the age, but of that day, no man knows. Now, on one hand, Jesus is saying there is something you will know. You will know. You will see certain signs. It must be fulfilled before the destruction of Jerusalem. But of that day that Jesus comes again, 
there are no signs preceding it. It will come instantaneously and suddenly, for he says in verse 37, but as in the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, Noah warned of in this impending destruction. Noah warned what was going to happen except that the people repent. But when the floodwaters came, it came suddenly. And Jesus said, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It shall be the same when the Son of Man returns. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And so these premillennial preachers will teach how before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to be looking for certain signs that are going to occur. And yet Jesus says just the opposite. Jesus says people will be going about their business pretty much like people are doing even today. Just like when Jesus will come again. They will be busy doing their business. And then Jesus goes on to say, look at verse 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. And then in Matthew chapter 25, he gives several parables that are helpful to our understanding of the second coming of Christ. On one particular uh, parable, he teaches preparation. He talks about the, the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, right? Or maidens. But listen again to the parable. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all of those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil. For our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for all of us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they, were, they that were ready went in to him to the marriage, and the door was shut. So this is a parable of preparation. Prepare for that time when it comes. When you get to the day of judgment, which will occur when Jesus comes again, you cannot borrow from the lives of other people. You just cannot do it. You cannot say, well, here is my husband or my wife or my children or my parents. Or here are my good friends, all of them faithful to the Lord. 
I would just borrow off of their good deeds. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's not how salvation works. And here it is. What is so sad that the text says that when the bridegroom came and the wise maidens went in with the wedding party and the door was shut. The door was shut. Some have speculated that that's the saddest verse in all the Bible. To consider the fact that the door of opportunity is closed. Even during this hour that the door of opportunity to come to Christ has not been closed yet. Have you ever dreamed or awakened from a dream thinking that the Lord had come again and you were not right with God? That can be terrifying. But oh, the relief in knowing that that was just a dream. I can get right with God, but one day it will not be a dream. The door of opportunity will then finally be completely closed. And so Jesus teaches about preparation in this particular chapter. And he goes on to relate another parable in verse 14 of Matthew 25, beginning. And likewise, it carries forth that same theme of being prepared when Jesus comes again. You know, verse 30 of Matthew 25 is a very sobering statement. When Jesus concludes that parable, and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To think about that is a terrifying statement. It's a very sobering statement, and we don't want to be among that group. And so there on Mount Olives, Jesus giving sound, solid instruction to his disciples, confirming the fact that the end of the age will come. And these disciples, following Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and following the establishment of the church, that would be a primary theme in their preaching, repent, get ready, Jesus is coming again. And so in verse 31 of Matthew 25, Jesus begins to talk about that day, the end of time, when he shall come again. Look at what the text reveals. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Right? All the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Gathered before him all of the peoples of the earth. All of the peoples of the earth. All those who had ever lived will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Notice that when Jesus comes again. It will not be something that's done inconspicuously or quietly when he comes. He's coming with all of his holy angels. For a brief moment, the heavenly city will be empty for God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and God the Son, Jesus Christ, will come with all of his holy angels. And there are other passages such as 1 Thessalonians 4, 
1 Corinthians 15 that speak to this topic. And so before him will be gathered all nations. And then he's going to be starting to separate the sheep from the goats. But notice verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I want you to notice how that stands starkly different in contrast from what Jesus says in verse 41, where Jesus said to those on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting father, fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. One is very positive. The other is very negative. For he says, come ye. Then he says, depart from me. Come ye, blessed of my father. Depart from me, ye cursed. Come ye, blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What a stark contrast. I do not know if there are two verses of Scripture that stand more in contrast than verses 34 and 41 in Matthew 25. Now this took place, this teaching took place on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus in helping his disciples understand what's going to take place on that day had said that there where you be for eternity will have to do based on your actions here on this earth. The course that we took during our lives here on this earth will determine whether we will come ye, blessed of my Father, or depart from me, ye cursed. The door of opportunity Will then be shut. For example, was I benevolent? Was I helpful? Those things will be revealed on the day of judgment. <clears throat> Jesus said to all of those on his right hand, he says, I notice whenever you did this for the sick, and when you did this for the poor, and when you did this for those in prison, when you helped the naked, you clothed them. I saw all of that. And when you did that for the least of these, my brethren, he said, you were doing it for me. You were doing it for me. But he also said to those on his left hand, and he said, I also noticed that you didn't do these things. And since you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. And therefore, depart from me. And so there's a summation in verse 46 of Matthew 25. Notice, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. So what do we have? We have here on the Mount of Olives, we have our Lord giving instruction to his disciples, confirming the end of the age and what it will be like when he comes again and what's going to transpire on that day. Now in 
Matthew chapter 26. You have Jesus with his disciples in an upper room. And there on that occasion, as we read in Matthew 26, 26, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. They met with Jesus, having seen him give instructions. And he explained the very purpose. And he says in verse 29... I will drink this anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When that concluded, notice verse 30 of Matthew 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Here's the place where Jesus would often go, where he gave that discourse on the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of time. They met with Jesus. He gave them these instructions concerning how to remember his death. And now in a place called Gethsemane, which is right on the edge of the Mount of Olives, Jesus would then pray to the Father. And in verse 30, Matthew 26, when they had sung a hymn, Jesus would go all the way to the cross singing redemption song. And he really did. They went out into the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Here Jesus is confirming his death. He's already confirmed about the end of the age. Now he's confirming his death. And Peter once again comes up to his Lord and wants him to quit talking like that. Peter says in verse 33, he says, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto them, unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise, also said all the disciples. But Jesus says, no. That's not what's going to happen. Look in verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little farther. If you like to write in your Bibles, underscore that. He went a little farther. A little farther. I I want you to notice this about the life of Jesus. He always went a little farther. 
right? Just think about that with regard to Jesus. He always went a little farther. He goes a little farther and there he breaks down and he prays one of the most beautiful prayers that could ever be prayed as he submits himself wholly to the will of his almighty father. Look at verse 39. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me Nevertheless, not as I will, by thy, but as thou wilt. Here Jesus submits himself to the Father. If there be some other way, if this can be accomplished in, in another way, let that happen. But if not, thy will be done. And so we learn something marvelous about our Lord Jesus Christ that we can apply to, even to our own lives that if he the very son of God could say I surrender my will to the will of the father how much more do we pray that same prayer even today let this cup pass but if it be your will then thy will be done. Jesus would allow himself to go through that awful trial and to Calvary's cross to undergo the very torment of Calvary and that cross because of his submissive will to the Father to remember in that same garden that after this prayer was completed that Judas would bring that throng to arrest Jesus in verse 47. And Judas would plant a slimy kiss upon his Lord and betray him in that way, verse 49. And then Peter would try to defend Jesus just as he promised that he would and he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And these, Jesus got on to him, verse 52. Jesus says, put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Just then re restored the ear back onto Malchus like as if it had never happened. And so during this time, during this time, Jesus made known to his disciples how that he could have called upon 12 legions of angels to destroy that throng. But that wasn't the will of God. And so Jesus allows himself to be arrested and he goes with his captors. And at that particular time, all of the disciples flee and he's left alone. In this particular moment here, there on the side of the Mount of Olives, Jesus confirmed his death. Jesus did die indeed, and he rose again. And then according to Matthew chapter 28, after spending some 40 days here upon this earth, following his resurrection, he met with his disciples on several different occasions, eating and drinking with them. And then before he ascended to his father, he met with them one more time. And where did he meet with them? Well, he met with them 
again on the Mount of Olives. That's right. Here was confirmation that he would be with them until the end of this age. And in verse 16 of Matthew 28, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them to, according to Acts 1 and verse 12. That mountain is none other than the Mount of Olives. Here is a place where Jesus had found refuge. Here is a place where Jesus had so often relaxed with his beloved disciples. Here is a place where he and so often taught them. Very important to understand. It was a mountain that was so very significant in his teaching ministry because he was so often had went there himself to recline. And so it would be to make sense that upon the Mount of Olives that Jesus would ascend back to the Father. But before he did that, verse 18, he said to his disciples, All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have, and I had this, already taught you. Right? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or the end of the age. All of those things that Jesus had already commanded them, they were to do and teach all nations. There on that mountaintop where Jesus had instructed them before Jesus gave them that final admonition, he says, I'll be with you even unto the end of the age. And that promise is that he made to his disciples there on that mountaintop is a promise that we still believe in today. It is a promise even to this very hour And we look for encouragement because we know that our Lord will not leave us helpless. He's there for us and will be with us unto the very end. I'm thankful for these significant mountains that we read about in the Bible. I'm thankful for them because they tell us more about the Lord and about His faithful servants. And therefore, I pray that through our Study that you have learned to appreciate to some degree, just a little more of these references to biblical geography, but even more so to the events that transpired on these mountains, mountains that God had created and that he used to be able to teach and to instruct his people. I'm thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his teaching. And I'm thankful... To know that he has given us his word. That he will be with us even unto the end of time. I'm thankful that he also has made sure that we understand the plan of God's plan of salvation. That he has provided for you and I a means of of being able to remove sin. 
and be in the right relationship with God. By believing that Jesus is the Son of God. The very true and living Almighty God. And that upon that belief that we want to make the changes in our life called repentance. To turn away from those things that we've been doing wrong. To start doing those things that are right. 180 degree change in our life. To then make that good confession before these many witnesses that Jesus is the Christ and that he came to this earth to save me from my sins. And then to go down into the waters of baptism to be buried in that watery grave to come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ by faith. And then to rise to walk in newness of life a child of God. Romans 6, 3 and 4. I hope that you'll make that decision tonight. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Tonight's the night. Maybe you're here already a child of God, but you wandered away. It's so easy to do. But you can make things right once again by your repentance of those sins and prayer to God. Can we help you even tonight? We hope that we can. Won't you come? As together we stand and sing.